This is the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, independent commentary from a California perspective for global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 17, Episode 11, The Elon Musk Twitter Saga, talking with financial journalist and best-selling author William D. Cohen. The on-again, off-again, on-again offer by Elon Musk to acquire Twitter seems to be a case of the buyer who doesn't want to buy and the seller who doesn't want to sell. Musk has admitted that he's overpaying for Twitter at $44 billion. At this point, the deal must close by Friday night, October 28th, to avoid a trial in Delaware's Chancery Court. Taking the world's largest public speech forum private, with its outsized influence on politics and popular culture, might also prompt U.S. regulatory scrutiny. With us today to discuss this risky, high-wire act is William D. Cohen, financial markets journalist and critically acclaimed author. He joins us from his office in New York. Hi, Bill, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm a pleasure to be here. Well, Bill, please take a moment to share your biography with our listeners. Well, I'll give you the short-ish uh, version, uh, which is that um, uh, I uh, first started my career as a, a journalist uh, after Columbia Journalism School, uh, working for a newspaper in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, as an education reporter, uh, then went got my MBA from Columbia, uh, went to Wall Street, uh, never thought I'd be a writer again, uh, spent 17 years as an M&A banker at firms such as Lazard, uh, Merrill Lynch, and J.B. Morgan Chase. And then in 2004, uh, went back to writing uh, full-time, uh, just completed my seventh book uh, about uh, called Power Failure, uh, about the rise and fall of GE. Uh, it's coming out in November 15th. Um, and I was, uh, for many years, a, uh, a special correspondent at Vanity Fair. I've written uh, op-eds, uh, many for the New York Times, the Washington Post. I write for the Financial Times. I write for a variety of publications. And now I'm a founding partner of something called Puck, which is a new digital employee-owned uh, uh, digital magazine. So that's it in a nutshell. Very impressive background, Bill. And Bill, Elon Musk is sometimes described as a genius, and the success of Tesla and SpaceX seem to illustrate the point. So how did he get trapped in this morass? You know, that's that's a great uh, question, uh, Jim. And um you know, since he doesn't really share, at least publicly, what uh, he was thinking about when he started in January of this year uh, buying up shares in Twitter. Obviously, he has a huge Twitter uh, following, more than 100 million people, which is, you know, extraordinary. Can you imagine, <laughs> you know, commanding an army of 100 million people? Uh, that's just, you know depth-defying, uh, uh, but he started buying up shares in January, completed that in March, 
and then started making noises about, uh, and then that became public because, you know, he had to disclose that he owned more than 5%. He owned close to 9.2% of the company, which made him one of the largest shareholders. Uh, there was talk about him going on the board. Uh, he said he would do that. And then because he's Elon Musk, he changed his mind and decided not to do that. And the next thing you know, he's making a hostile tender offer or hostile offer for, uh, he didn't get to the tender offer phase, uh, hostile offer for uh, Twitter uh, at, you know, $54.20 a share, $44 billion. You know, and as, as you said, uh, you've got a, a buyer. Uh, well, at that time he wanted to buy, but over time he decided to change his mind. You have a buyer who, uh, doesn't uh, want to buy and a seller that doesn't want to sell. So it's an extraordinary situation. But, uh, you know, even given those facts, the fact that he uh, signed a merger agreement on April 25th, uh, offering to buy the company for $44 billion, the board of Twitter, of course, uh, being well advised by Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase, knew that this was an extraordinary, really generous offer. Uh, and Elon has, of course, since said that uh, he's overpaying for the company. He's acknowledged that. Uh, so they had no choice but to accept it, even though they didn't want to sell. Mm-hmm. And then literally, uh, almost immediately upon him signing that merger agreement, which is a legally binding document, mm-hmm. he started making noises about wanting to get out of it using pathetic excuses like he didn't understand, uh, you know, how many quote unquote bots were on the site or, you know, other things that, uh, you know, just weren't going to hold up in court. He mm-hmm. eventually said, uh, he wanted to get out of the deal and tried to get out of the deal. Uh, Twitter took him to court in Delaware and uh, now we're in a position, as you said, uh, where if he doesn't buy this thing uh, by Friday, uh, you know, they're going to be uh, heading uh, to court, which is, of course, something that I'm sure Elon doesn't want to do because he's going to lose in court. So he's in a tough position at the moment. So how did he what happened in between filing that his enthusiastic filing of the the offer and his withdrawal of it withdrawal of the offer obviously we're not privy to inside information here but i mean it it seems like it it seems like there was a a a flash of lightning or something that occurred to him that he just didn't want to go through with it what do, do you have any any speculation out there bill what that could have been well, I think, uh, you know, my, my sense is a combination of things. Uh, one, he it dawned on him how drastically he was overpaying. And even though he's, you know, worth $200 billion, you know, he's putting in something like, you know, $31 billion mm-hmm. of his own equity, you know, uh, which is extraordinary. I don't think one individual has ever put in that much equity into a deal in the history of the world uh he so he he probably thought oh my god what what have i done why do i don't why do i want to own this thing i'm already ceo of tesla i'm already ceo of spacex i've got boring company i mean what the heck did i get myself into Uh, i'm overpaying uh this thing's a nightmare uh and uh guess what i'm getting cold feet you know buyer's remorse 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it happens a lot. It's a phenomenon, buyer's remorse. Uh, uh, and you occasionally see it on Wall Street. I've never seen anything uh, quite like this. This is truly extraordinary because it's completely and utterly self-inflicted. It's not like the company was for sale. Twitter didn't wasn't for sale, didn't want to be sold. But, you know, when somebody comes along and puts this impossibly high offer in front of a board of directors who have a fiduciary duty to shareholders, mm-hmm. uh, they, you know, basically they had no choice. And, you know, when others were sort of saying, oh, well, this will never happen and the board won't go through with it. And so, I mean, to me, as a former M&A banker, it was obvious that uh, there was just no way the board could say no to this, given uh, how exceedingly, quote unquote, fair the offer was from a financial point of view and that they had to accept it. And they did. They were very well advised. They did accept it. Uh, and, you know, I mean, we all know at this point that Elon Musk is quite mercurial and uh, marches to his own drummer, which is probably why he's one of the world's richest men. And so, I mean, why he wanted this headache, why he uh, brought this onto himself, a totally self-inflicted wound. Mm-hmm. And by the way, um, given the change of his, I'm sure you're well aware of him, the valuation in the in the equity markets, uh, rising interest rates, which have you know tanked the debt markets, uh, and this debt was committed to by the banks uh, on April 25th. You know they're going to have huge losses when they try to resell this debt. Uh, if they have to sell it at too big a discount, that basically essentially means that the company is not worth nearly what Elon Musk has paid for it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, his equity, $31 billion, uh, 24 of which looks like it's coming from him and seven from his buddies, is seriously impaired. So even before the deal closes, you've got his banks losing hundreds of millions of dollars and his equity being seriously impaired. So... This has gone from, you know, a bad dream to a total nightmare. Now, uh, in, in defense of Elon. Um, yeah, have fun with that. <laughs> in defense of Elon, the yeah. uh, Twitter, Twitter has been uh, a lackluster performer among the social media stocks for, for a number of years. And I guess... It's rumored that a strategy is that he might want to create the everything app. Uh, they talk about uh, the Chinese equivalent of WeChat, which is an all-encompassing app which includes chat and comment, and uh, you can hail a ride on it, and you can pretty much do everything. It's a one-stop shop uh, app. And it was rumored that perhaps that's what he wanted to transform Twitter into. I'm just trying to understand how would such a such a brilliant mind as he has, and he's he's no stranger to, uh, for instance, he was one of the founding members of PayPal, and of course PayPal is not social media, but uh, it is an internet-based uh, public utility kind of social media payment system. Um, any any credence would you give any credence to that bill that strategy you know sort of like you know breaking it to save it kind of thing yeah um look i I, look i'm sure there are projections that he has made 
you know, that you and I would recognize as former bankers uh, that were used with the banks, that were used with his equity investors to uh, get them comfortable that he was going to turn this thing around, that that the billion dollars of EBITDA that Twitter has traditionally made and, you know, that's like in a good year would somehow miraculously under the ownership of Elon Musk and the vision of Elon Musk and the, 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 the intellect of, uh, of Elon Musk would somehow be 3 billion or 4 billion or 5 billion. It would somehow miraculously morph into this uh, cash flow machine. Uh, I don't know how that's going to happen. Uh, I have not seen those projections. I've seen the projections that were included in the proxy that were used by uh, his uh, Twitter's banks, Goldman and JP Morgan Chase, to render their fairness opinions. But you know, those seem obviously those are not the Elon Musk type projections, uh, and even those seemed uh, fantastical to me. Uh, so you know, and he's talking about you know firing seventy five percent of the workforce. You know, frankly, to me, that sounds like an unmitigated disaster. Mm-hmm. If you fire 75% of the people who work there, uh, even if that's the right thing to do, does that mean, you know, the EBITDA that was a billion goes to, you know, say there's 500 million of savings from firing those people, a billion and a half? Or did those people who work there actually have something to do in achieving that billion, billion. billion in EBITDA? And so that, you know, you just sort of tanked yourself by firing all these people. You know, honestly, I don't know what's in this guy's head. I don't know how he's going to make this work. But if I were one of his equity investors or his banks, I'd be really, really, really nervous now about this deal and its premises and whether or not, uh, you know, it's going to be one of the worst deals in M&A history. I, I would I would tend to agree with you because, you know, if you look back at his successful track record, he's a great success when it comes to startups, PayPal, Tesla, SpaceX. Which he didn't start, by the way, but uh, he well, invested in. He invested in, but and, he was... He was and made it... Right, he was an early investor. He was an early investor. Made it made it what it is today. Made it what it is today. But the point that I want to make is he wasn't he didn't achieve his wealth through mergers and acquisitions. He as right. as appears to be the case as appears to be what he's trying to do with Twitter. You know his uh, his secret sauce, if you will. It's not so secret. Is that he was either a founder or an early investor in these very successful companies and essentially started with pretty much a clean slate. In the case of Twitter, he hasn't got a clean, he's paying $44 billion for this slate, which is not all that clean. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. I look, I think this was uh, maybe, I mean, it's a lark might be too strong a word. I don't think it was a lark because, even the world's richest man does not engage in a $44 billion lark, but he obviously uh, uses Twitter. It's a very effective means of communication for him. He controls this army of more than a hundred million people who follow him, which is, you know, just kind of extraordinary. If you think about it, Uh, he obviously uh, did not agree with, you know, kicking Donald Trump off the platform. He thinks he can probably, run it better because he thinks he can do anything better than anybody else. And, Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's hard not to believe him when he thinks that way. I mean, he's, as you said, he's got an extraordinary track record of both clever investing, running companies, uh, entrepreneurial starting companies. But this is a, you know, a deeply troubled company. It's, Mm -hmm. as, as you said, you know, in your description of the company, it's an incredibly important social media platform, but it's, it's never been a particularly uh, good business. It does not generate a lot of cash flow. I mean, you you know, a billion dollars of EBITDA in a good year, uh, and probably less in free cash flow uh, is not you know a, a, a great business. I mean, I think Apple generates something like eighty billion of EBITDA uh, a year, and you know, its valuation. Absent this deal would be, I mean, it would, it would look like Snap, which is down, you know, 80%, 90% this year. Uh, uh, absent this deal, this company would be trading. I mean, on, you know, right now, you know, if the debt of to the issue debt, uh, if it closes and if it were to be sold, I think the bank's now going to hold on to this $13 billion of secured debt. But what I was hearing from my sources, and I wrote a piece about it in Puck, you know, last week was that this debt is going to be priced at like 50 cents on the dollar, wow. you know, to, to which is an incredible discount, as I know you can appreciate, mm-hmm. which, you know, half of 13, so it's 50 cents on the dollar. You know, this thing, this company is really worth $7 billion, in effect, is what the market is saying, uh, you know, plus some option value for the equity, which isn't very, I mean, so instead of $44 billion, the company... I mean, just to be generous, say is you know maybe worth ten billion. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge delta. That's a huge discrepancy. Uh, that's a huge impairment to uh, Elon's equity and that of his equity partners. So does he have something in mind here? He must. Is it uh, you know is he the king of option value? Yes, he's gonna try to implement whatever it is he's gonna do, and so it's gonna be a private company. And probably won't even have to file public financial statements because there's no, you know, there's no publicly traded high yield debt uh, at the moment. Um, you know, we really won't know uh, uh, what the P and L uh, looks like of this company uh, for a while, and you know, it's going to be okay because he's Elon Musk. He's worth two hundred billion dollars, and you know, if he loses thirty billion dollars, uh, you know, that's quasi tithing. Uh, to the, you know, uh, church of Elon Musk. And, (laughs) you know, it's not going to change his lifestyle. I think we could all get by just fine uh, with something like a billion dollars, right? So he's got 200 of those. He's got, yep. You know, interestingly, he's rumored to be bringing in some significant investors. For instance, Prince Al-Walid, the uh, Saudi prince who was a very significant investor in Citibank in its darkest days. Uh, also, the, yes. ga- the Qatar Sovereign Wealth Fund. And then thirdly, a Chinese investor called uh, Binance Company. I'm, n- I'm not that familiar with it. But, but you have yes. um, Saudi prince, the Qatar yeah. Sovereign Wealth Firm, and then this uh, Chinese company called Binance, which would be his fellow investors. They, for, for Al Walid in particular, has proven in the past to be a very savvy investor, particularly in the in the case of his Citibank uh, stake. So, uh, to your to your point, he's it still is Elon Musk, and Elon Musk is able to 
to summon the that kind of high caliber investor who and I'm sure he shared his secret sauce and his vision with them as regards what he has in store for Twitter and they're buying in so uh, I get to the extent yeah. that it's a it's a private deal yeah well let's see number one uh, let's see if they uh, fulfill and follow through on their equity investments that they've promised basically 7.1 billion of the uh, 31 billion of equity is coming from these outside investors 17 or 18 people yes uh, one of them is the Qatari fund one of them is Binance uh, you know there's Larry Ellison who's the biggest $10 mm-hmm. billion dollars there's there's Andreessen Horowitz uh, A16Z there's Sequoia Partners. So there's, you know, some of your friends out there in the Valley mm-hmm. um, uh, who are backing him. And I think we saw from, you know, some of the discovery that came out in the Chancery Court case uh, before it was suspended, you know, uh, it's fascinating for journalists, you know, showed that, uh, you know, there were all sorts of these fancy people who wanted to be close to Elon and, uh, you know, just like agreed on a whim to make investments um, you know, you mentioned Prince Al Walid, who I wrote uh, a Vanity Fair profile of once upon a time. Um, and, you know, he was an early investor in Twitter. He, he invested $300 million in Twitter mm-hmm. early on, mm-hmm. I think after it went public. And, you know, this, this is the most extraordinary story. Obviously, he was one of the people who was, uh, you know, uh, under house arrest at the uh, at the hotel in in Riyadh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when MBS uh, consolidated his power, um, and I don't think he's ever been quite the same since then. He's certainly not nearly the dynamic guy that I once profiled, but he could have. Think about this: he has like thirty-five million dollar, uh, thirty-five million Twitter shares. He could have taken cash mm-hmm. at fifty-four twenty and cashed out his three hundred million. At something like a billion nine, mm-hmm. which is you know not a bad return, all things considered. Instead, he decided to roll it over uh, into into Elon's equity, which, as I was saying before, is seriously impaired, if not worthless. So, at least at the moment. And so, uh, unless he changes his mind, you know, Prince, uh, which I really hope he can do, because uh, you know I just I don't feel bad for him, but I just. He must be, you know, ruining the day. He uh, decided not to take the cash, which was just sitting there to be taken, like other investors have done, uh, like BlackRock and Fidelity and Vanguard, uh, and decided to roll over into Elon's fantasy. Um, And that's going to cost him a lot of money. So, um, again, he uh, it's clear that people wanted to invest with Elon in this. But again, that goes back to May, April mm-hmm. and May might've been a lot, you know, a lifetime ago now, given, you know, what the fed has done with interest rates during, you know, given the inflation that's, uh, that seems to be ever present, uh, you know, the looming sort of recession that people seem to be talking about. And obviously a uh, Twitter has been wounded by this process, you know, the on again, off again, uh, deal process has, you know, and when you talk about 
you know, firing 75% of the people who work there, that's not going to do anything for morale. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you can appreciate. So this is a deeply wounded company. And, you know, I don't know who he's going to get to run it. Um, but he's got a lot riding on this. Uh, but again, in the scheme of things, if he loses $30 billion, it's not going to affect his life one way or the other. Well, I'd, I'd have to agree with you there. And the possibility of U.S. US government regulatory scrutiny, uh, that seems to have popped up as an issue in the last couple of days. Any thoughts on that, Bill? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's seriously unlikely. Uh, you know, first of all, CFIUS, which is the you know, Committee of Foreign Investment mm-hmm. in the U.S. Uh, it doesn't move quickly. This deal's supposed to close on Friday. I, you know, all of a sudden, CFIUS is looking at it. I, I just don't think that, you know, of the thirty uh, one billion of equity, twenty four of it coming from Elon, seven from these outsiders, you know, and maybe a billion or so of that is coming from foreign investors. You know, Prince Alwaleed aside, who's already been an investor. So if he's already been an investor, I don't see how you make a big stink about him continuing to be an investor. So uh, I, you know, my gut tells me that's not going to be the stopping uh, point here. Uh, uh, you know, although I wouldn't be surprised if the banks or his investors wish that Cepheus would stop this deal, <laughs> or even Elon wishes Cepheus would stop this deal, but I don't see it. Well, Bill, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners on this Elon Musk Twitter acquisition? Well, I think, you know, um, you know, it's it's so obviously the uh, deal of the year. Uh, it's one of the most extraordinary uh, M&A deals that I've uh, ever experienced uh, in my 30 plus years, either being on Wall Street or writing about Wall Street. Uh, you know, again, as we were saying, this is a company that did not want to be sold, uh, now being sold to a guy who really doesn't want to buy it. Uh, you know, I don't think you can, and he's paying a huge amount of money and so much of the equity. It's, it, you know, it's kind of mind blowing in so many ways because the purchase price is mind blowing. It's like 44 times EBITDA. Okay. That's mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Uh, the fact that one guy would put in, you know, $24 billion of equity. I mean, obviously that's never happened before. Uh, the fact that, you know, 17 or 18 other people would, you know, step up to put in another 7 billion without really doing much due diligence. Okay. Maybe that kind of thing happens, but that's extraordinary. The fact that there's, you know, 75%, of the purchase price is equity and yet the debt and it still feels like a leveraged buyout because the debt is 13 times EBITDA. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's extraordinary. And the fact that the banks who committed to it in April are, you know, in November or the end of October sitting on a loss of 50% or 60 or 40%, you know, whatever the number is, uh, even before they try to sell it and they're not even trying to sell it because they don't want to, perfect that loss and that even before the deal closes elon and his equity investors you know are pretty much you know uh torpedoed i mean i it's just incredible to me and 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 he's talking about firing 75 percent of the people <laughs> who work there honestly people who do deals want them to work out right, right? that's why they do them 
this deal seems hopeless from the start, even worse in a way than AOL Time Warner, because, you know, at the start of AOL Time Warner, which is generally regarded as the worst M&A deal ever, I mean, at least there was like all this optimism, all this, you know, the AOL guys, uh, you know, were blithering on about how this combination was going to be so extraordinary and was going to lead to vast wealth and all sorts of exciting new things, none of which happened. This there's just none of that enthusiasm. There's none of even of that bluster or, or, or blithering or, or any hope. It's just absolutely extraordinary, which is why I guess I've sort of taken to wanting to write about it all, pretty much all year long. Uh, and uh, it's been a great ride. I, I mean, if you're writing about it as a journalist, the only kind of regret is that if he does close it, then there won't be a trial in Chancery Court in Delaware and that would have been another incredible chapter in the story. Well, Bill, on that note, I guess we'll all be tuning into Bloomberg late on Friday evening, Friday the 28th, to see whether or not this deal finally closes. And I'd like to thank our guest, Bill Cohan, for joining us today to share his insights from Wall Street and his insights as a financial journalist. And Bill, how can our listeners follow you? Well, believe it or not, I am on Twitter, like every good <laughs> journalist. Uh, so I'm there at William Cohan, uh, and I have a fairly robust uh, website with which has uh, my seven books on it, as well as uh, you know a vast trove of many of the articles I've written uh, over the years. Uh, doesn't have anything about my banking career, but that's probably for the best. Uh, so, you know, I'm out there, uh, you know, I can be read in many different publications. And as I said, I'm a founding partner of Puck. I would encourage people to check that out at Puck.news. And, uh, you know, the Google will, uh, you know, serve up any number of things I've written or done over the years. Well, Bill, once again, thank you very much for joining us today. We'll look thank forward you. to, uh, to you coming back and reviewing one of your books real soon. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 335 as we continue to mark our second anniversary. With listeners in 65 countries, the San Francisco experience is carried on 19 platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, and most recently, Odyssey, the second largest radio network in the United States. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco.